Hello, my name is Jen Hickey. Welcome to the WEN podcast, a series of conversations with people as they share their WEN moments. Recognizing these times can change our destiny, help us to stop hiding behind the past or clinging to a future that may or may not happen. This podcast is about recognizing the power of the WEN moments. Hello, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone that has listened and shared my first two podcasts. It was really great to have the conversations about menopause, a much neglected area in women's health. I think you'll all agree. And uh, your feedback has been amazing. So thank you so much for that. In this week's episode, I chat to co-founder and CEO of Mobility Mojo, Stephen Klusky. I remember lying there and hearing this commotion, hearing guys talking, but, you know, it was just noise. And I asked one of the guys, could could they lift my arm? And I saw this hand appear in front of my face, hand that I I should have recognized as my own, but didn't. And then when he let go of my arm, it dropped to the ground. And I knew something serious had happened. Stephen was involved in an accident when he was 18 years old, which has left him paralysed from the neck down. But that's only part of this incredible story. I start off by asking Stephen what life was like before everything changed. Please don't forget to like, share and subscribe to this podcast. I think I was your your typical teenager, Jen. So, I mean, I was, I played a lot of sports growing up, played tennis at the highest level in the country here up until I was maybe... 14 and 15 on all the Leinster squads and the Irish Open tournaments, all that type of thing. Um, and that that's really what consumed my my summers and my Christmases and Easter's was all around tennis and training. Um, then as a teenager in Belvedere College, I mean, I think I was unique in that I really liked school, not academically, more for the social aspect of things and the friends and it, it didn't seem like a chore. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I wouldn't say anything out of the ordinary. I was probably average, at best, a C type student in school. I enjoyed it. Didn't apply myself as much as I probably should have. Um, but at the same time, I was I was happy go lucky growing up. Yeah. So, what happens next then? Can you go back to the day that everything changed for you? So yeah. So it was the fourth of August, two thousand and two. I was just gone 18. It was after the the World Cup, which was a brilliant experience. So to go from that high then to what happened just after, it was, um, I was at the Dublin game during the day, Dublin and Donegal in Crow Park. And I got home, got a phone call from a friend to see if I wanted to go camping with a group of them that night. It was a beautiful day, which was unusual in Ireland. And I thought, yeah, why not? So we arrived to this field in North County, Dublin, a field I'd known well. It's the back of my cousin's house. We set the tents up and settled down. And um, I remember seeing this hay bale across from me. And I don't know why. It was just like a teenager instinct thing. I decided to jump on top of it. And as I was on top of it, all of a sudden I felt it begin to move. And I looked back and saw one of the friends was pushing it. So I tried to keep my balance, but a couple of seconds later, I fell. And next, the best way I can describe it is like the Indiana Jones type moment, you know, when he was trying to escape the big rolling boulders behind him. Yeah. 
yeah, well, unfortunately, I wasn't as lucky as Indy. Um, it wasn't a movie. It was as I lifted my head to roll out of the way of this rolling hay bale, it caught the back of my head and pushed it forward. And I did. I heard a crack in my neck. I remember that crack sound. And then everything in my body just went dead, like a bolt of lightning went through me. I remember lying there and hearing this commotion, hearing guys talking, but, I, you know, it was just noise. And I asked one of the guys, could, could they lift my arm? And I saw this hand appear in front of my face and that I, I should have recognized as my own, but didn't. And then when he let go of my arm, it dropped to the ground and I knew something serious had happened. So from there, I was taken to the Matter Hospital. Did you know at that, like, what was going through your head at that moment? I mean, you must have been terrified. It's, it's quite a blur. I do remember yeah. bits of the ambulance. I remember more the feeling rather than the actual events. But I remember a lot of tests. So there was, there was scans and x-rays and pricks. And it was over, it wasn't like over an hour or two. This was over, it felt like two or three days. I don't know if that was the reality, but it felt like that. And then I remember the doctor coming in to show me the scans and to tell me what had happened. And he said that I'd, I'd broken my neck and it was pretty bad. And so from there, what they recommended, actually funny enough, the doctor that was looking after me guy called Martin Walsh and his son was in school with me in the same year in Belvedere. What year were you in? I was in, I was going into sixth year when this happened. Okay. Just about to start. So it was August and school was starting two weeks after. Um, So yeah, he came in and he said, look, things are, it's in where the break is. It's very high up in my neck. It's in a really dangerous position. And he said, what I'd recommend is that we treat this with a thing called traction which is where they fit this metal caliper to your head. From it, they suspend weights. And like if you're lying flat, this thing is like a halo over your head. There's weights hanging out the back of it. And the idea is that it stretches your head away from your body so that the bones that were broken can then line up again naturally in the neck. And that was the treatment. So 12 weeks in the bed like that. Um, But uh, do you know... I do, yeah. I remember being in the Matter Hospital. There's a, there's a specialist spinal unit in the in the Matter. Do you know one thing that jumped out two days or three days after lying there? I remember, you know, there was people in a lot. Mom and Dad were around the bed a lot. And I remember mm. saying to Mom, I was like, I, I haven't gone to the toilet in two days. You know, and, and there was sort of, there was a, a mix of a laugh and a mix of sort of, uh, it's okay, don't worry about it. I didn't realize that. I'd been catheterized and all of that was happening. So for me, it was um, it was the ceilings in the Matter Hospital. That's basically all I saw for 12 weeks. I could tell you all the tiles on the ceiling there. Um, but I wasn't, there was no depression. There was, there was one or two moments of sadness, but really it was, okay, this has happened. How do we, how do we fix it? How do we get on from here? And I mean, like, God. So, uh, you know, I, I have heard your story before. And, you know, any time I hear it, I just, like, I'm a parent myself with three kids. So, I mean, I can't imagine how your, your mum and dad must have felt, your, your, your brothers as well, And I think, do you? Yeah. I do have a brother and sister. And, and just on that, Jim, like, I was isolated from that. So looking back, I can imagine how difficult it was 
yeah. for them and the doctor telling them this stuff and yeah really tricky but for me i was lying there in a bubble and i had a mm. constant stream of people visiting and bringing stuff and messages so were you always that positive i think i was yeah i i mean yeah i think i was i i i, I don't know whether it's a disposition or I, did, you, did you know at that stage did you was there a moment where it dawned on you because you're saying there that you it dawned on you a couple of days in, you hadn't been to the bathroom and stuff. So was there a, a period over those 12 weeks where you're still thinking in your head, this is, you know, I'm going to get through this, I'm going to walk out of here, or anything like that. Did, did you have any of those moments? No, there's a slow realization. There's no exact moment where you say, oh, Jesus, this is me, like I'm, I'm, I'm screwed here. It's, okay. it, for me, it was over a period of time. So... It was the small goal setting. Like when I was first in the hospital, it was the goal was to get the, the weights off my head. And then it was to eat regular food. I'd chew in my nose, which I was getting fed through that. So it was trying to eat properly and then sit up a little bit in the bed. And it was all these little steps. That's what I was focused on. It wasn't um, the, the big picture of, oh, I'm going to jump out of the bed tomorrow. It was okay. all those little steps. And I think that definitely helped. There was a moment about six months in, and I think it was that long when I was in the the physio department. So it was physio every day and, and occupational therapy. And we were sitting, I hadn't seen myself in months in a mirror. Mm-hmm. And the physiotherapist was sitting behind me and they brought the mirror over because we were working on my balance. And I saw, I think I was in shorts or something because I remember seeing my legs and thinking, oh my God, that's not my my body or my legs, and and that that for me was the moment that really hit me, where okay. seeing this unrecognizable person in the mirror, um, and I, I I broke down in the in the the physio room for for that moment, but it was a. Uh, and did you have any? So I mean, obviously you're surrounded by doctors and physios, and everybody is kind of looking after you in that way physically. Did, was there anybody looking after you kind of emotionally? I mean, your parents, you have huge support, obviously, from your family. But I, I only ask because, you know, so much of the time we spend, I spend, you know, we're all worrying about the physicality of stuff. And, you know, you're on this roller coaster of, you know, trying to look this way, behave this way or whatever. But for you, I mean, was there a kind of a realization that really all of a sudden now you have to kind of turn into your mind? You know, the way... We, we focus so much on the physical we, when really we should be focusing on what's going on in our, in our heads. Is there, a- there well, I mean, I found keeping myself distracted and keeping myself occupied was, um, was a way to help with that. I had a lot of, listened to a lot of music and TV in between the periods of people being in and out. And no one really spoke to me about, you know, there was all, oh, what do you feel or how does this yeah. work or, or that, but there was no real talk about, uh, the future or a quick recovery or anything. I do think that there's many similarities, what I went through at the time as to what the world is going through at the moment, yeah. where you do have that cloud hanging over with, with what's going on. And it's the, it's the lack of a future time point of things being okay. Mm. I think is the best way I can describe it. Where at the moment with COVID, no one knows what the future holds. No one knows how and when things are going to start to re- return to some sort of normality. Yeah. And that, 
for me was similar to the the spinal injury where they can give you best guesses, advice, but there's no definitive answer on things. And the way a spinal cord injury happens or what happens in the body, a doctor described it to me like a, it's if you imagine a cable with millions of fibers in it or millions of little cables in it and you take a scissors and you cut across that cable maybe three quarters of the way but if you take that same cable and cut it again you're never going to cut the same two ways again so each spinal cord injury are similar but there's a lot of differences as well so like i i genuinely believe i was really blessed jen really fortunate and i broke the C2, 3, 4, and 5, so the top bones in your neck, if you feel the back of your neck, basically as high up as you can go, those top four bones I broke. My cord is damaged. The wires are damaged between the fourth and the fifth. The lower down you go, the more movement you have. But for some miracle, I didn't stop breathing. After two days, my parents were told, which I didn't realize until after, that I was going to stop breathing that day. And it didn't happen. And so whatever wire in my spinal cord that controls the breathing was left intact. And that was a whole other level. There was no ventilator. Um, my breathing has never been a major issue. Okay, I, I don't have a loud voice or I can't shout. Um, and I breathe with my stomach. But for the most part, you know, I've been blessed with that. And I think that I've been really fortunate. The other thing is in terms of our, our health service, so we often, I mean, you hear so much about how crap the HSE is and how many bad experiences, all of that type of thing. I look at this at a, a global perspective. Can you imagine if this happened to me? Okay, take Africa, anywhere in Africa, bar maybe South Africa, an exception. I think I'd probably be dead if yeah. if we were looking at South America, another massive region, I'd probably be maybe in a military hospital staring at a wall, not being able to be productive in the world. America, okay, maybe some good treatment. Probably be a millions of euros worth of debt because of it. Um, Scandinavia, yeah, fine. The UK, fine. But Ireland, in comparison to the rest of the world, I think we're very fortunate as to yeah. what we have and the support networks we have in place there. Mm, no, 100%. We are very privileged. We are very privileged. And I mean, you're, you're being very humble here. Like, you know, the, what you've been through is huge. I know it's a long time ago now and you lead a very full life. But, you know, even when you hear it, it's, it's, it's a huge amount for your head to get around, which you obviously have, which is why we're, you know, sitting here today. W- one quick question just about your friends. How were they? They must have been traumatized after that. To, to have to watch and I, used to, I presume you're still friends with them now. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I mean, that, those things really help. Um, they're great mates. Um, we're very lucky. We all grew up together. There's a group of maybe 10 to 15 of us, so a really strong group. Even now, we're, even with COVID and lockdown, we're playing poker every, every Saturday night, you know, and chatting online. So um, that was a massive help. And I think family as well. I have an incredible family around me, but, you know, a strong family structure definitely has helped as well i think i was just going back to when it happened i was 18 i was young i was fit i was in the gym a lot i was playing a lot of sports that i i believe that had a a big big help as well in my recovery yeah and you obviously like you said took it like a day by day kind of recovery so that your head could cope with where you were 
yeah, I think if she, if she, if I'd stepped back and looked at the enormity of what was ahead over particularly the following 12 months and the learnings, um, it would be very difficult to try to to digest that. But I think doing the the small goals, the step by step, the distractions. Oops, um, excuse my dog barking. There. <laughs> Let's talk about, just briefly, because I know we've loads to, to get through. Let's talk about, you spent years, obviously, physically with physios and getting yourself, because you're sitting without a, a neck brace and all of that must have taken a huge amount of time to, to or did it? Yeah, there was, I mean, there, there was, it's a roller coaster, to be honest. But I do think, going back to what you were saying about the um, the headspace and the enormity of what I suppose physically the challenges that came about because of that. I mean, like I said, I physically it looks quite bad, but mentally I was in a good space. And I'm sure we pass people on the street all the time who you can't see the challenges that they're going through in terms of their own headspace. I know for me, you look at me and say, Oh God, that's terrible. And it looks bad. Mentally I was okay. And I think that's, such a uh, there's such a um a contrast between those i had a friend who great life wife kid went through one of the most severe depression i've ever seen you know um really difficult time mentally and i i think a lot of people face those mental challenges that i haven't had to face to a large degree. So while physically things look bad for me, um, I think the mental thing that, that people go through that we don't know about, that we can't see, you know, is uh, it's something that, that hopefully what you're doing, Jen, and what, what other organizations out there across the country well, can I, help I with. I think, uh, you know, it, it's very much, I suppose, you know, that saying, you are what you think. And if you can get your head around that, and, and, and that's, I suppose, what I meant when I t- talk about we all go around in circles all day worrying about the physical, when really at the end of the day, the body's just a vessel. And if you don't have the, the positive headspace that you clearly had and were able to maintain, you know, that's why it's, it's such a valuable lesson. Um, yeah. You know, you, you can get through anything, I suppose, when you have that. Yeah, and it's all relative. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm fortunate that there's been no major deaths or trauma or that throughout my family or friends or that as well so um that's that's something that uh i don't know how i'll deal with mentally when when those things happen yeah um let's talk about college because you you went to college then study business did you always want to study business yeah i did yeah yeah and i my i was keen to do international business in dcu Uh, but obviously it was it was as i was going into leaving cert year when the accident happened so while I was in the hospital and I think that was another good thing for Headspace I did my leaving certificate so we had a teacher in the hospital who would we'd do a couple of hours a day she'd write all the notes and write everything for me and then I'd, I'd listen to audiobooks and stuff around it as well um, and that was another good tool to get through things so I did the leaving and then yeah went on to college I studied in UCD an economics course, and then I did some history and psychology in DCU. That was more of a personal interest. And then I spent four years doing an honors business degree as well. Wow. Holy God. So that's a, a long time studying. 
well, I had a, I had a good bit of time and I, you know, I, I wanted to keep my mind active yeah. and distracted more than anything. And I found that good. Yeah. That was in, in, on top of the, the rehabilitation stuff. So like you mentioned, I did the first couple of years was fully dedicated to recovery. So 2002 was the injury I spent until 2008 uh, with intensive physiotherapy. So it was four hours a day. It was 12, 13 mile cycles on an electronic bike, standing frames, all of that. And how, then how does that feel when you're, when you're doing all that on the bike, like you're talking about in standing frame and, I mean, you, were you exhausted doing that, in, in, like mentally in your head? Physically exhausted as well. It was, you'd be short of breath, you'd be sweating, I'd feel it, but it felt good because I yeah. felt like I was trying to make a difference in my own recovery. Mm. It was that inch by inch type of mentality where every day was that little bit closer to recovery. And the more I can put in on those days, the closer and the quicker I'd get to that recovery. After a couple of years, it did get frustrating because with all the work that was put in, you know, six years of that, and I think I'd a tiny bit more movement than my arm as a result of it. You know, there was it was minor, if anything. And then what happened in 2008 was after a, a scan, an MRI scan on my neck, they discovered a, a cyst. So it was a, a blob of fluid on my spine, which when I had the traction initially, one of the bones didn't line up correctly and this fluid built up. And what that meant was that it was um, getting rid of some of the recovery that I've made and potentially I could have stopped, lost my breathing because of it, because that cyst would grow up my spine. So I, I researched things and I decided to go to Portugal to a doctor over there who'd done some clinical trials with people with spinal cord injuries. And I had an operation. He removed some of those vertebrae that were damaged. I've, titanium rods in my neck over the neck of a terminator now you could hit me in no problem at all wow uh, and i got a little bit more recovery or movement from that i lost a little bit on one side gained a bit on the other um and then another two years of intensive rehab after that jeez that you must you you obviously have the patience of a saint now i, I do not have patience <laughs> I, I again it just comes down to the small goal setting you know it's the the day to day, the week to week, the month to month. Yeah. So you went to college and all of this happened. And tell us about uh, the changing of the legislation for taxis, for accessible taxis. Because was that the start of kind of, you know, what you're doing now in essence? Yeah, that was where I first found a real purpose after this. And that, that internal drive to, to, to help and to make a difference and the, the selfish, nice feeling that you get from that as well. Um, it was 2010, an incident in Dublin City where I'd booked for a friend's birthday, booked an accessible taxi, uh, given 24 hours notice, which you usually have to do. Came out of the pub, at, it was 12 or 1, it wasn't late, and there was no sign of the taxi. So I phoned the company, they said they didn't know. There was a mix-up and there no accessible taxis left, and phoned a couple of other companies no luck. Anyway, long story short, we spent the next five hours at the side of the road. It was lashing rain, freezing, trying to hail down an accessible taxi with no luck. So 6 a.m., I had to bite the bullet. My stubbornness had to eventually ring my parents to travel in to Dublin City Centre to pick me up to provide a service which I thought 
should have been there, should have been a basic enough human right. And I spent the next couple of days in bed, sick, trying to recover from this. And as I was lying there, I remember thinking, like, this isn't good enough. But I thought, okay, so if we were to solve this problem, what do we need to do to solve it? And where does the problem lie? So I spoke with some transport experts in the Irish Wheelchair Association, built some good connections on that. And I worked out a couple of potential solutions. I met with Alan Kelly then, who was the Minister for Transport at the time. And after that discussion, he must have seen something like that because I got a notice a couple of months later inviting me to um, to sit on the Taxi Advisory Committee as a, a member of the general public. And it was from there really that I was able to, to, to sway things and to have some influence. And it's not that people don't want to solve these problems or that they don't have the intention to. It's more that... Firstly, they don't realize there's a problem, and then there is a gap in knowledge. Okay, how do we solve this? So with the experience, the personal experiences and the research I'd done, I was able to bring forward suggestions, which um, eventually ended up, I think anyway, putting, putting the foundations in place to move towards 100% accessible fleet. Um, we raised more than 5 million euro to put... Incredible. accessible taxis we've doubled the number in the three years i was on there of accessible taxis and i think it's had an impact on people's lives and the moment when that's the the selfish feeling that you get when i travel into work there was a certain type of accessible taxi that wasn't legal in ireland which was ridiculous it was the most popular accessible taxi in the uk when i see that taxi drive by there's lots of them the small peugeot partners keep an eye out for them and great accessible taxi when I see them, I get that little tingle down my neck to say, Jesus, if it wasn't God, for the bit that you know, bit of contribution. Most of us would have gone home annoyed that night and kind of given out about it for a few days. So like, it is amazing. I, I know you don't like to get all this kind of gratitude or you know, credit, but it is amazing that you, that you saw that through and now you can sit back and you can see that. I presume you haven't waited for a taxi since. <laughs> yeah, it's been a lot better anyway. But I mean, there's there's a there's a there's a contrast between Dublin and the rest of the country, which we need to still yeah. address. But we are getting there. Like I said, the foundations are there. But like yourself, Jenny, it's that one step. You take that first step, and the snowball effect that happens as a result of that. If you have a, a hesitation with with starting, the the hardest part is to start, and then it's just a continuation of that. Yeah, but it it obviously lit a fire in your belly to go further then? Yeah, I think so. I think I, I, I got a, a real sense of, of purpose and of uh, self-fulfillment from knowing that, you know, one individual or one of us can make some sort of a difference on things. Yeah. And then it was, okay, well, what's next type of thing? <laughs> so what, where did you meet uh, Noel? Noel is your, your business partner in Mobility Mojo. So we I'm have, sure we've jumped now through a yeah. thousand things. So feel free to. Uh... It runs in line. I, I had a company called Go Accessible mm-hmm. 365, and that was as a, as a solution to the problem we just spoke about with the taxis. So my thought that night was if I had, like, I'd met a lot of really great taxi drivers, accessible taxi drivers. If I had direct contact details for them, I probably wouldn't have, you know, maybe one of them would have said, I can get to you in an hour or two, but at least you know that someone is coming. So I don't think I would have had that issue. So that's where that that company came from. And 
it was a nationwide website where you'd search Donegal, wherever you are, you'll get a list of the accessible taxis in the area and direct contact details for the drivers and all the other relevant information. So that was my my initial business. And from that, I was involved with Social Entrepreneurs Ireland. And Noel had a company who was doing accessible accommodation. So it was house swaps. Her thought was she's a brilliant accessible property in Dublin. Someone has a great one in Florida. She's traveling there. Why not have the the swap, the change? And so we were actually pitching against each other at one of the social entrepreneurs competitions thing. And that's that's how we initially met. And, and then from there, she, she'd followed up on a project she was involved with with a company here in Ireland who'd got a European grant um, and that led then to what's known now as Mobility Mojo and myself and Noel taking the whole thing over. Amazing. So what a brilliant idea she had. Yeah. Had, I think had she what, done it at all? Had she done a swap? High swap? She, she'd gotten so far. She'd built a platform. She was talking to me about advice and stuff. And I think the reason it didn't really get off the ground was the the psychological issue that someone with a fully accessible house has things set up the way that they want them set up and they weren't comfortable for the most part of someone else coming into their house and taking over and using that stuff over a week or two. Uh, okay. But I okay. think that's, that's the reason why it didn't get off the ground. But I mean, we've moved on to something much bigger and better as a result. So Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's, let's talk about stats, first of all, because I know you have a lot of stats. And, and you know, <laughs> for a lot of us listening, you know, we probably won't believe half the stats that you have, but unfortunately, it's a fact. So tell us about Mobility Mojo and what you're doing. So we, we know that more than half a billion people globally don't travel because of a lack of information on accessibility. Half a billion people. And that's a, a United Nations statistic. So there's, there's a lot of credibility behind it. That's our mission is to solve that problem, is to open the world to everyone to get people moving. But it's not that just that individual with accessibility needs. And by the way, when we talk about accessibility, we're talking about your elderly mother or father with the bad hip, the bad knee. It's your parents with the buggies. It's your tourists with the suitcases. And it's the billion people globally with accessibility needs half a billion half of that group don't travel because there's this gap in information so that's the problem that we're looking to solve we want to empower people to travel to have those experiences again and you're talking about wanting to travel to spain for example it's phoning the hotel it's finding out whether the room is accessible yeah so i'll give you an example our our, um co-founder noel She's a wheelchair user herself. Um, when she travels somewhere, it's emails, it's phone calls, it's photographs having to be sent of the bedrooms because they don't publish the photos of the accessible bedrooms. What's important to her is the height of the bed. So she's had a couple of occasions where she turns up to the hotel, goes into the room, and she can't actually lift herself onto the bed because the bed is too high. There's a standard, the 23 inches is the recommended ideal height for an accessible bed but a lot of these things are overlooked and again it's not out of it's not out of someone you know out of spite or anything it's more misinformation and hotels not understanding what facilities are needed and what an accessible bedroom looks like yeah um so you can see why bad experiences across the globe for people traveling 
with accessibility needs, so the knock-on effect. And a, the... a huge fear involved then, obviously. So it's obviously in their heads. I know Bobby, my daughter, is blind, so we have a similar issue. Uh, I, I know it's, it's not, she's not a wheelchair user, but, you know, as she's got older, we've realized, you know, for her to be independent, like it's, it's tough. She really has to do her work in the same way when she goes anywhere you know, if it is a hotel or whatever, and I say, if I'm with her, like I'll have to go in with her, show her where everything is, hot tap, cold tap. It's all the little things that I suppose you just wouldn't think of. Yeah, if, it's a confidence. Unless you needed to. It's a confidence thing, Jim, exactly. Yeah, and I remember talking to Bobby about that and she was opening her eyes. Like there's, there's so many variations on accessibility and things that people look for. Bobby mentioned about her glass table is so difficult for her because it's see-through and she can't actually see the the physical object that's there yeah and menus and mm. you know the, obviously the lovely lighting in a restaurant for bobby is an absolute nightmare because she just bashes into everything and she's like you know literally yeah. like a whirlwind going around but it 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 does make you think i mean when she was a small child obviously we did everything for her so it was it was i suppose fine but as she's becoming an adult now or she is an adult uh, you know it's the right that everybody should have regardless like you say your elderly parents you know wanting to go away on holidays. Yeah, and it's not that difficult. And the first step is that information, that confidence builder. What our software and what our company helps hotel groups to do is to show people what they have. So to capture all their accessibility information of what they have so that the end user then can look at that and say, okay, that suits me or it doesn't suit me. But at least you're, you're ruling out those bad experiences that we've just spoken about and you're giving people the confidence to say I can stay there that that suits me and is there anywhere that's kind of ahead of the game any countries that are better than others I think the Scandinavian countries are are on top of this there's a group called Scandinavian hotels who do have a big emphasis on accessibility this is the fastest growing market in tourism and it's driven by the aging population the the silver tsunami, we call them, is coming because people over 65s, whether they like to admit it or not, have accessibility needs. And like mm-hmm. I said, an accessibility need is a menu in larger print where you forget your glasses. It's not a, a ramp and a bigger bathroom. It's so much broader than that. It's baby changing facilities that you might need when you're staying somewhere. That's accessibility. So we broaden the conversation on that, but we show the opportunity as well. And what we've seen is for for hotels that have implemented this information using our software, they've seen on average a thousand nine hundred percent return on their investment. Gosh, it just sounds like a no-brainer for business. Never mind for people's life. They take both sides. So they consumer confidence, they come across really well and they make extra money as a result of it. What's not to like about it? And uh, so how has COVID now affected everything for you? It's it's been tricky, obviously. With you know, hospitality is one of the the most affected industries across the world. Um, if we went back to March, we were we we discussed things every day over Zoom with, uh, with with everyone in the company. And our lead developer suggested that he said, "Look, we've built this incredible software. We've spent a lot of money on it. So why don't we see if there's a way we can use it to support and to help." hotels through this and that's very much in the philosophy and the culture of what mobility mojo is about it's about opening the world to everyone mm-hmm. initially when we developed that concept it was about those with accessibility needs who couldn't travel but i think at the moment 
no one's traveling. And this is about empowering everyone, giving them the confidence. So what we've done over the last couple of months is we've expanded our software to be able to cover hygiene for hotel and hotel groups. And we know similar with accessibility, these hotels have great facilities. Likewise, in terms of hygiene, they're doing incredible stuff, cleaning wise, hygiene stuff, but they're not really telling people about it or telling them well enough about it. So what our software does is to help them to do that and to give the end user like yourself or Patrick or anyone else that confidence to know, okay, I'm in a, uh, a well-looked-after hotel that has good hygiene standards. And I, so I'm assuming then that even more so now people with any sort of a disability are, are even more afraid than to travel. Yeah, I mean, I think the rest of the world can now partly relate to that fear aspect that people with accessibility needs have in terms of not knowing what to expect. What are the hotel doing in terms of my safety um, for hygiene? I remember listening a couple of weeks back to the the hotel group, some of the, the top CEOs in the world, the likes of, of Keith Barr and Arnie Sorensen, and they were from Intercontinental and Marriott, and they were talking about how if we went back to February, hygiene was probably, wasn't in the top 10 anyway of consumer considerations when staying in a hotel. Now it's number one. Sure, now it's front and center. Think of it really. Mm. Yeah. And now it's it's all every everyone thinks about. Yeah. Crikey. What's next, Stephen? Our so our targets are the tar- largest hotel groups in the world. Mm. That's how we see with the resources we have to have the maximum amount of impact. We we are in discussions with a number of them at the moment. Um, we want to see this mobility mojo on every every hotel in the world. That's the ambition. And once we've done that, we'll have achieved our mission. People ha- will have the confidence to be able to travel. The reason hotels are primarily our focus is because of the nature of travel. So if you go somewhere and it's a restaurant or a pub that doesn't suit your needs with accessibility-wise, generally you can move down the road or go somewhere else. If it's your hotel, it's your home for the couple of days you're there. If it doesn't suit, it tends to ruin your trip. So that's why our focus is on hotels. So um, in terms of, of the next couple of years, we see this solving this global crisis for people with accessibility needs. God, I mean, it's, it is amazing. And uh, I think what you're doing is amazing. I think you're a huge inspiration. I'm so motivated when I listen to you speak. I think it's incredible what you're doing. I mean, if you had any advice, so to for, forget about everything for a moment and just in terms of your own headspace for people that are struggling at the moment, because so many of us are in our heads and not in a good space, you know? And yeah. when you listen to your story, you know, really it's, it's hugely inspiring to think you've gone from where you were to where you are now, successful business, girlfriend, you're living your life fully. I mean, there's so many lessons that we can learn from you as much as you, you know, cringe when I say that. Have you any <laughs> advice for any of us listening just in terms of encouragement, headspace wise? I think the biggest thing that I've learned is about purpose. I think find your purpose, find what you're passionate about, what you enjoy doing, and hopefully what impacts on other people's lives. Find your purpose, and I think you'll find fulfillment in life. You'll find that reason to get out of bed. You'll find the reason why 
you matter and how you can make a difference in people's lives. Um, so purpose for me has been the biggest changing point and the biggest driver. With us in Mobility Mojo, we have the potential to change the lives of more than half a billion people. How much more purpose in life could someone need? Oh, God, amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Totally. Thank you so much, Stephen, for taking the time to chat to me today. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, great to talk to you, Jen. <laughs>